0: Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub
1: Radio.
2: Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, and I've written a bunch of books. And I'm Yvio Hallam,
0: and I've written a bunch of books too. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book related topic. And in this episode, we consider whether an artist with extraordinary talent in a physical medium can bring those gifts to the written word.
2: I want to say that in this case, in the case of our guest, the answer is absolutely yes. The artist we're talking to today is Giorgino Pascogin, soloist with the New York City Ballet and author of the new memoir, Swan Dive, The Making of a Rogue Ballerina. The minute I heard about Swan Dive, I knew I wanted to interview Georgina. For one thing, the bio on her book cover promises, quote, a half hour with her will shake your stereotype of uptight ballerinas to bits. Spoiler alert, it does. (laughs) Yes. But her memoir is about so much more. It's a rich, detailed portrait of a very insular world, the world of ballet. And it's also a portrait of the making of and life of an artist. Georgina grew up in Altoona, Pennsylvania. She didn't come from an artistic family. Her mother enrolled her in dance class when she was five because she needed something to do with this incredibly active kid. But Georgina fell in love with ballet instantly, and she's still in love with it. Her passion and respect for her art and the world of ballet is all over this book. Despite its inherent racism and the widely Publicized Toxic Culture of the New York City Ballet under former artistic director Peter Martins.
0: We go into all of that in the interview, but first a little more about Georgina. She joined New York City Ballet in 2002 and became a soloist in 2013, the first Asian American ever to be promoted to the company's upper tier. In addition to her many appearances at City Ballet, including a celebrated portrayal of Anita in Jerome Robbins' West Side Story Suite, her credits include the award-winning film New York Export Opus Jazz, Ivy in the Broadway revival of On the Town, and Victoria in the Broadway revival of Cats. Georgina is a passionate activist for the Orphan Starfish Foundation, and she's a co-founder of the globally recognized diversity initiative Final Bow for Yellowface. You know, I grew up going to the New York City Ballet. My mom has had a subscription since the 1970s, and every single time I go, I have the same question, which is, what does it feel like to be able to do that with your body? Well, talk about a lifelong dream come true. Georgina tells us. She gives an incredible description of dancing the role of Hippolyta in George Balanchine's ballet *Midsummer*, which is based on Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream.
2: We started by asking Georgina why she wanted to write this book. Here's what she said. I
1: felt compelled to share my story because I feel I feel a lot of things, clearly. But um, my experience as a multicultural woman in this institutional world of ballet, which has been predominantly Eurocentric, white, in its origin and its participants. I just felt like I wanna share a new side, a fresh perspective and a side that's brutally honest about what it's really like, not only to be a woman of color in the ballet world, but also what it's like to be an artist in the greatest city in the world, which is New York City, in my opinion.
0: Yeah. Is there anything about writing that feeds your soul in a way that dance doesn't?
1: That's a really wonderful question. Let me think about that for a second. Mm -hmm. I would say it does. Nothing feeds my soul the way dancing does, but I have found such empowerment in finding my voice and I found new agency in this new expression of writing. I think what my gift ultimately is, you know, I happen to be talented at ballet, but I think where I really connect is, is in this exchange between performer and audience member. And in finding these different ways in which to have that connection, that's what fills my soul with joy because I believe it or not, I'm a really awkward person.
0: It's yeah. <laughs> <That is> hard <laughs> to believe. Yes. Yeah, we're
1: just gonna have to take your word for that. Yeah. I mean I've already choked on coffee. <laughs> yeah, I can barely walk down the street when I'm not dancing. <laughs>
0: yeah. You know, there's some activities that certain people perform at a very, very high level that are at least imaginable to regular people like me or Julie, because we've all done them even in some small, pathetic way. So, you know, even though I have no idea what it's like to pitch a ball hundred miles an hour or run a four minute mile, yeah, I played softball in gym and I've gone for a jog, but ballet isn't like that. It it seems to me there's almost nothing about ballet dancing, especially when you think about ballerinas who spend a fair amount of time on their toes, that's familiar to non- Dancers. So I'd love you to tell us what does it feel like to do what you do at the level that you do it?
1: Ooh. Okay. And it depends on what I'm actually performing. But for instance, for example's sake, let's take Hippolyta Mm -hmm. that I write about in the book. It's three parts jumping out of a plane. Mm. Two parts strategizing a chess move and i suppose one part being a rugby player (laughs) (laughs) so it's like there's this thrill and adrenaline um if you have ever been so happy or like you're at a concert And, you know, like Janet Jackson comes on and she does the sizzle and everyone's like screaming. (laughs) It feels like that in my soul when I'm really in the pocket of dancing. And then there's also just the physicality of it, because a lot of times then I'm going to be extremely out of breath. I call the term puffed in the book. But then there's also a lot of thought. I'm always problem solving whilst I'm dancing, especially in a role like Hippolyta, where you have uh, props, you have a cape, you have fog, which is dry ice, which is making the floor slippery. You've got people running around. You've got scenery. You've also got like a bow and arrow that you're trying not <laughs> to hit anyone with. <laughs> oh um, so it's firing on all cylinders, and that's what I tried to do in the book: is create analogies that people who haven't trained for you know 20 plus years in this art form can understand it's not as quaint and dainty <laughs> as it looks it's really 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 intense
0: those words didn't show up for me while I was reading no. <laughs> okay, <ahead>. not once
2: <laughs> you started at the new york city ballet at a very young age can you tell us about that how did you end up there did you look like the other dancers there what did the training feel like
1: so I grew up in Altoona, Pennsylvania. I'm one of six children, and I'm from a multicultural Filipino-Italian family. And apparently, as a child, I was always on the move. So my mother put me in dance classes early on, and I took to it really quickly. And as what became a hobby all of a sudden became a ritual in practice for me and a devotion, we would go to these... We call them regional dance festivals. It's all of the schools in the general Northeast tri-state area. And that's where I first met Suki Shore. She was giving a master class. And that's when I was first introduced to this balancing technique. And I think after the class, she must have found my parents and gave a nudge, hey, Georgina should audition for the summer course. It wasn't like I knew I grew up knowing what New York City Ballet was. My parents did not go to the ballet. I had not seen a professional ballet company perform. I had no idea about that aspect of it. My dad just kind of, we didn't talk about it. I think they knew that I had talent at ballet. And he woke me up one Saturday morning and we drove to Pittsburgh. I did the audition I knew it was an audition, but I just enjoyed it as a class. And one of the rare times I got to dance to live music in a classroom and was offered a scholarship. And that's how I came to New York. That kind of started this ball of me coming to three times the summer course at the School of American Valley, being asked to stay on scholarship every year, turning them down twice. And then the final year saying yes, that year in the school, then preceded me joining the company you have to go through the school of american ballet to join new york city ballet um and to finish the answer the second part of your question which i forgot (laughs) no i didn't see anyone that looked like me especially when i moved to new york that's when i really started to key in to the fact that like oh maybe i'm different on another level You know, when you walk the halls of the School of American Ballet, there are these beautiful pictures of ballerinas and principal dancers from the past, this history, and none of it included an Asian American woman. And that impacts a young mind more than one thinks.
2: In the book's introduction, you talk about the common experiences among dancers, the intense scrutiny and pressure, the personal sacrifice, and the biases about what a ballerina should look like in terms of body type. But you also say, but where my commonalities with the cast I'll soon introduce end is that I'm a mixed race woman who has succeeded despite this outdated ideal How these individuals at the New York City Ballet view the ballet world is different from mine, largely for this reason. Their experiences as dancers and now administrators do not and cannot match mine. Can you tell us a little bit about the kinds of experiences you've had as a mixed race woman that aren't shared by your white colleagues?
1: Well, I'll start with the most obvious in that... When I first came to the when I got my apprenticeship to New York City Ballet, there's a make hair and makeup department. And one of the first things is that I realized that there was no shade of makeup that matched my skin tone. Mm-hmm. And the shade was actually alabaster white in the in the pancake. And so I noticed even at a young age of 16, 17. You know, obviously, since I'm a performer, I'm used to putting a new how to match my skin tone and to be told, you know, well, then just don't go tanning to match this makeup. That's an experience that some of my fairer skinned colleagues and friends never had to. And I and I say this acknowledging that I pass. I am half white. I have a lighter skin tone than most of my brothers and sisters. But to be told that, well, just don't don't go tanning. And to know that I used to spend my summers in the pool, in the water, and to have ballet rehearsal directors say, you know, like, no black swans. Enjoy your summer break. No black swans. When you come back, that's completely, that lands different to a person of color. It wasn't meant to be a dig for me, but it just... It was a, you know, a flippant comment that affected me differently. Like I said, there there weren't pictures. Of, I didn't have an idol, so to speak. I didn't have someone that I could model my path after, and that's also kind of affected my career in different ways. In that the hierarchy of a ballet company, the artistic director, one sole person decides casting. Mm -hmm. It's not a democratic process. I don't get to audition for roles I'd like to dance. This person is viewing me in my rehearsals, in my classwork, and they are deciding for me what would be the best roles for me to embody. And when no one looks like you from the past, that becomes a very interesting um, process. And I found that Well, I've actually been told that by former bosses. They don't know what to do with me. Mm -hmm. I think that's a super nuanced sentence. Part of that is me having multicultural identity and not having anyone that they can just slot me into. Oh, she looks like a Darcy Kissler. We'll give her the Darcy Kissler roles. I dance like a lot of different ballerinas from the past. I can be this super strong athletic dancer and I actually do a lot of what we call in the ballet world, tall girl roles. I'm what you say, a jumper and a Turner, but I also can embody super feminine roles as well, but because there's not been anyone with, you know, dark hair in the princess role. (laughs) I'm just trying to be very politically correct here. Um, that, has influenced my casting. Yeah.
0: In general, would you say that diversity and equity is improving at City Ballet or in
1: the ballet world in general? If I were to grade City Ballet, give us a C. I think that there are many steps being taken in the school, but in the actual company and what we are doing now, yes, we are. And I think a lot of ballet companies, because we had to and because of the power of social media, people are screaming it on their pages, their websites, that they are inclusive. But I am sitting here as a person of color being like, okay, but it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to do it. And that goes beyond hiring people. It's rethinking who you see as the ballerina leading the corps de ballet. It's who you see as the queen and the king on stage. I think that we are well on our way to reaching the point of work where that can happen, but we are not there yet. And I think that's a fair assessment.
0: New York City Ballet, like much of the country, is baby-stepping when it comes to race, or maybe Toddler stepping, I don't know. (laughs) Definitely (laughs) not giant stepping. And one example is the Balanchine production of The Nutcracker, which Georgina talks about at length in her book. City Ballet does a huge production of The Nutcracker every year. There are 47 performances. God only knows how many performers, including soloists, core members, and kids from the ballet school. It is a scheduling nightmare that requires two casts of core members, an A cast and a B cast. Except until pretty recently, all the core members who were people of color were grouped in the B-Cast. That, thankfully, is not happening anymore.
2: Yes, thankfully. And there are other changes too. There used to be for decades a moment in the Nutcracker when a dancer played a Chinese man dressed as a poor person in a rice paddy hat with a Fu Manchu mustache and yellow face makeup. In 2017, there were diversity discussions happening at City Ballet, and from those discussions, Georgina and her friend Phil Chan, who's a Chinese-American arts administrator and educator, launched the nonprofit Final Bow for Yellow Face. It started as a pledge for ballet companies to commit to eliminating those kinds of outdated and offensive stereotypes of Asians on their stages. Today, scores of companies have signed the pledge and modified their productions, including New York City Ballet.
0: Obviously, there's still a long way to go in ballet and in the wider world when it comes to both racial and gender oppression. The removal of Peter Martins and the sexual harassment of some of the female members of the company by certain male dancers has been very widely covered in the press. Georgina discusses those events in her book and we'll link to an article or two in her show notes. But as you can imagine, the aftermath will continue to be felt for some time. We asked Georgina to tell us about what life was like for her when Peter Martins was artistic director at City Ballet and what the impact of those years was on her. Here's what she said.
1: Life at New York City Ballet is incredibly fast paced and it's highly competitive. That is all still the same, but he chose to rule from a place of fear. So I I felt very anxiety ridden. I felt like there wasn't a sense of trust And when you're trusting someone with your entire career at the age of 17, that's a bit intimidating and intense. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah.
1: And I think that the way this person interacted with dancers, I know I'm not the only one, but I can only speak from my personal experience. I'm still. Processing the ramifications of such treatment. And that's why I talk about how important it is for artistic directors to understand the power they have just because the professional job starts so young and you're snatched away from your actual parentage. I moved away from home. And I think that's where the ballet world goes wrong with this one head leader this patriarchal this like kind of father ideal you have to submit to the one soul power that just creates a whole atmosphere that's not conducive to freedom of expression in dance
2: yeah i want to ask too about the effect of kind of a regime of one particularly a very domineering and problematic one on the company as a whole. So in 2017, a number of dancers accused Peter Martins publicly of physical and verbal abuse and sexual harassment and a number of other dancers defended him. Ultimately he resigned in 2018. It must've been really hard to have that kind of division in the company. I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about, about that specifically and also maybe just What kind of dynamic that kind of a person has on the ballet, on the dancers as a whole?
1: Well, the the division within the company, I feel like it still exists. And if anything, I think my book kind of refreshed that division pain, but once again the reason why i wrote the book was like i don't think a voice from this from this side of the spectrum has been heard or seen or put front and center and i still hold space even though that i have experienced myself ending friendships over this this person <laughs> I mean, he could be the ultimate, most giving person to a certain person. And that's valid. I am not invalidating that at all. But I am also sharing that this person was incredibly awful to a lot of other individuals. And that also has to be held as a valid view. Yeah. It's the inability to see both sides that has created this division, both things can be true. I saw him be incredibly caring to other people. I never got that, you know, Mm -hmm. and as someone who knew that this person held so much power over me, I'm not going to lie or front that like I didn't want that. You know, and I didn't spend a lot of my teens and early twenties trying to understand and assimilate into the system of how do I get this person to also treat me with respect and and want to help me and want my artistry to flourish. And then I started to connect the dots and how like inherent bias affected that, how just personality affected that, me being an outspoken woman. And also his own insecurities as a person. So it sucks. It really sucks (laughs) that we all are suffering. Even the people who had a better experience, we all continue to suffer the effects of how this company was run for so long.
0: Yeah. And gender's a part of that too, right? You describe how male dancers often got preferential treatment under Peter Martin's leadership. And I'm sure that adds to some of the feelings of division among people in the company.
1: I mean... I think, I mean, that's just like, that's just the broad spectrum patriarchy across yeah. the board. That's
0: the world we live in. Sure.
1: Yeah. It's so, so yeah, there is that. And just also the fact that like, you know, male dancers are just far less of them. So if you're talented and it's like, listen, like everyone at New York City Ballet is extremely talented. They're the best of the best so when you're it's just like women have always been like we are the body of the co- like we are the swans we are the body there's so many of us and we are therefore our disposable no one's saying that outright mm-hmm. maybe behind closed doors it's been said in a terrible conversation or two but like just in the ballets that we present you can see there's a division in how the women of the ballet are seen and how the men of the ballet are seen
0: Yeah, without a doubt. And I wondered whether those differences show up in other ways. So for example, there's the expectation that dancers, men and women are graceful at all times and that you never ever show pain. And I wonder, is that harder for women than men? Is ballet harder on the female body than it is on the male body? I mean, especially because women are on their toes all the time.
1: I am going to say I am not a man, nor have I. I would say no. Men in the ballet, they carry quite literally a different burden. There is so much that the male dancer does not only virtuosically in solo performance, but the whole point of the male in this partnering aspect is if he's doing his job properly he disappears into the background. That's so much care. That is so much nuance. That's understanding physics of another person and yourself. I can't speak highly enough about male dancers and how much trust is needed in those sorts of partnerships. Ballet is hard on every body. And it doesn't matter whether that body is male or female.
0: Okay. So we, we can rejoice that when it comes to physical pain, there's
1: a in the dance world. Yes. There <laughs> there's equality. gender parity Galleys when it comes to universally pain. hard. <laughs> there's equality in that. It's impossible. Yeah. It's just impossible.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, one more question about this. I also wonder, is it fair to say that male dancers are allowed to be fully realized adult sexual human beings while women are much less so
1: that's that's not fair to just put that right on the ballet world that's like a larger patriarchal theme and just the power dynamics between genders in our society but i think the ideal ballerina archetype as this sort of virginal for a lot of times conquest that we could easily change. We just need to rethink our full lengths and how we represent women. I mean, we, I don't really want to see the story of the Sleeping Beauty and a woman who has, who's, you know, was forced to go to sleep for a hundred years and then it's just like kissed and then all of a sudden she's married. She missed all the great stuff, you know. Like, I I think we can re as women and as as women and men we can rethink. How we present ourselves on stage.
2: Yeah.
1: And that's the question I want to pose. These are just the discussions that I want to have in the ballet world as a result of writing this book. And I feel like what's a shame right now is I just coming back to these two different camps. There's a lot of people who just aren't reading the book because they read this salacious article. And yeah, that shit happened. That's fact. I didn't blow the whistle on that. I am not the whistleblower in that sense. What I'm saying is that there's a lot more to discuss and we can have constructive discussion, but first you have to really read and understand a different perspective from your own. You have to be open to the conversation. And I'm hoping that we will get there with some of my ballet rehearsal directors and other company members who might feel a certain way, I I feel like they feel betrayed. And there's no reason to feel that because if anything, I'm the most deprecating on myself in the book.
0: Yeah. So I just want to ask one more question. And that's, you have a really intriguing dedication at the beginning of your book. You say, this book is lovingly dedicated to artists, both distinguished and unrecognized and to the blessed unrest.
1: Who are the blessed unrest? Oh, that's a play on a quote. It's by Martha Graham. It's this conversation between Agnes DeMille and Martha Graham, and that artists, we are constantly fighting this need to create this need to perform. It's the blessed unrest. She says that like, no artist is ever pleased. And that's kind of how I feel like, It's this compulsion to still create, to still go in and do plies better, to still go in and to perfect this role that I'm going to embody more and more and more. It's never something that I am, even if I did get promoted tomorrow, the book got adapted and everything went my way and the pandemic ended, I would still be driven to create, and that is the blessed unrest.
0: Ah, how great is that?
2: I love it. Just love it.
0: So good. After our interview, Georgina emailed us with the full Martha Graham quote, which is, no artist is pleased. There is only a queer divine dissatisfaction, a blessed unrest that keeps us marching and makes us more alive than the others. I love this notion of a blessed unrest that keeps us marching, but I question the more alive than the others part. To me, blessed unrest, it sounds like a description of the human condition. It's what keeps us marching as a species. I think there's actually a danger in elevating artists as somehow better than or more than regular mortals. It can lead to situations like the one with Peter Martin's.
2: Yeah, maybe that's why Georgina didn't include that part in her dedication And I think you're right about that danger. But if we extrapolate more broadly, I think there's something about striving for something that we love and that we want to perfect, you know, something that feels just out of reach and well worth the effort. If we just keep at it, I think that striving does have a connection to feeling alive. Oh, my God, Julie, I feel so inspired now.
0: (laughs) Thank you for that.
2: Anytime. Thank
0: you. And I'm also so grateful to Georgina for coming on the podcast to share her story. The next time I go to City Ballet with my mom, I will know that everybody on stage is feeling in their souls like they're at a Janet Jackson concert when she does the sizzle and
2: the audience is screaming. That is just the perfect note to end this episode on. So I'm going to say that's it. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player.
0: As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Georgina on Twitter and
2: Instagram and at com. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveyohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming.